This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help and inspire more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and you're listening to us at our new weekly premiere time, 9 a.m. Eastern on Thursdays. So I'd like to say welcome to our new listeners. I hope you'll make a note to join us every week at this time. And to our old listeners who followed us here, so glad you came along. And if you miss us, you can always check us out on our podcast, wherever podcasts are available, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and of course on Business Radio for our download. With the 2020 election now officially less than a year away, it seems timely to talk about the changing numbers of women in politics, not just the Trump effect, but the powerful role that differences in race, party, and incumbency play in whether women run and whether women make it into office. We're going to talk about ways that women candidates are navigating the all-too-familiar set of barriers, often with surprising outcomes, and consider what all this means for the year ahead, and in particular, the big election in 2020. Our guide for all of this is one of Women at Work's favorite guests, Kelly Dittmar, a scholar at the Center for American Women in Politics at the Eagleton Institute of Politics, and she's also an assistant professor of political science at Rutgers University, Camden. She's the author of a newly released research report, Unfinished Business, Women Running in 2018 and Beyond. So I can't tell you how happy I am to say welcome back to Women at Work, Kelly. Thanks for having me again. So I imagine it's a busy week, not to mention a busy season for you. Um, I'd like to kick off by just share with us some of the patterns that you saw, um, not just in 2018, but how and but some of what played out in yesterday's election. Sure. So um, in 2018, what I'm sure listeners know and sort of had seen in coverage was that there was a record number of women who were both running for office, so filing for candidacy, winning nominations, meaning they got through their primaries, and um, even winning uh, election, and so uh, serving in elected office after the 2018 election. So that was the overarching narrative that I think folks were familiar with, and you heard people talking about the women's wave or the surge and all of that. Um, And so women did make history across levels of office. It wasn't only in Congress. We saw these record numbers at the state legislative level as well. but there were some caveats to that, um, and, and this speaks to trends. And that was this was entirely um, among Democratic women. Uh, so Republican women actually lost representation uh, across levels of office, uh, including in Congress, governor's offices, state legislative offices, et cetera. Um, so this is a very partisan trend in terms of women's success. Um, and we also saw that even in this year of record levels of women's uh, candidacy and success, they were still underrepresented. Uh, so you had um, women less than a quarter of the filed candidates, for example, running for Congress. Um, and again, even in office today, uh, less than a third of all elected officials across the levels of office that we're able to keep track of at the Center for American Women in Politics 
And so for us, it was sort of, yes, success, but this idea of unfinished business, that we've got a lot more work to do to get to parity. And what we'll be watching for um, in this cycle is, do some of those trends continue? So do we see continued increase of women's candidacies, especially as a proportion of the whole pool of candidates, right? Like, what's the denominator of men uh, and women combined so that, you know, do we see an increase that women are an increased percentage? On Tuesday in Virginia, um, among Democratic candidates for the House of Delegates, women were 52 percent of the candidates on the ballot, which sort of mirrors actual their actual representation in the population broadly. But, of course, um, this was only in the Democratic Party. But that is a positive sign. Um, and that was an increase from the, the previous cycle in 2017, which is a record year for women there. So we're seeing positive signs in some of these mid or off year, I should say, elections in terms of women making up a larger proportion of the pool, even slightly larger among Republicans. But that gender, excuse me, that party divide um, was still something we saw this this week in the elections, and again, we saw in 2018. So the question going into 2020, of course, as it pertains to party is, will more Republican women run? Will more of them win? And overall, will we see women continue an upward trend in representation? I really appreciate you breaking it down into these three important stages, because I think all too often we simply focus on uh, were they running or did they win? And that um, the first step is actually filing to run, which takes a fair amount of courage. What where did we see the most growth and to what do you attribute it? Yeah, I mean, where we can identify sort of just characteristics, right, it's a little bit hard to do that just because we don't know all the details about all these top candidates. Um, but it's certainly we saw that growth just among Democrats. So mm-hmm. there was a partisan piece of that. Um, but relatedly, and I would say a bit more anecdotally, because, again, we don't have demographic and sort of specific data on all of these candidates. Um, but we did see women who were younger, Um who were willing to sort of step up, especially in some of these congressional races. Um, We obviously, in 2018, we elected the two youngest women to Congress ever, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Abby Finkenhauer from Iowa. Um, Both together were the youngest women ever elected. Um, And some of the women who were running, too, were running with young children. And while that might not seem like something that should be that surprising, I think those who who know the same story in business or any industry know that there are challenges um, that are different for women than they are for men in that navigation of professional life and personal life when it comes to caregiving. And so what we saw was more women, at least, it seemed to us, again, we wish we had all of the data to know how many kids everybody had um, at what ages, but it certainly seemed like there were more women sort of willing to say, I'm going to try to navigate, you know, having young kids and running for Congress, which is tough. Um, but they were willing to have the conversation along the way about how we change the system in order to better accommodate women and men who um, might have that situation. So, just uh, two weeks ago, I believe, uh, Katie Porter, who is one of the new members, new women members of Congress from California, um, helped to, again, bring to the floor of the U.S. House, and I believe it passed, um, a bill that would more explicitly in law state that um, candidates could use their campaign, uh, the money they raise in campaigns, to pay for child 
as long as that child care, of course, was something they needed as a result of them campaigning. Uh, this was something that throughout the campaign, another woman candidate had pushed forward in her own case with the FEC. But uh, Katie Porter, a single mother of a three, I believe, young children, um, is trying to, again, put that into uh, more explicit law so that it's not a case-by-case decision. This is a long way to say, you know, we were seeing women change some of those traditional areas that have been either talked about or viewed as hurdles. You know, it's hard to be a young mom. It's hard to be young. Um, (laughs) It's hard to run for office. (laughs) It's hard to run for office or you're not a traditional partisan or you should wait your turn. Um, I honestly challenged a member of her own party, an incumbent, and won. Um, That was not the norm in 2018. But together, these women broader story about how do you disrupt the the rules or norms of the game in electoral politics. And and there's a lot to parse out there. If you just tuned in, you are listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest is Kelly Dittmar, an assistant professor of political science at Rutgers and a scholar at the Center for American Women and Politics, also one of our favorite Women at Work guests because she just teaches us so much. Today we're talking about a report she wrote for the Center for American Women in Politics called Unfinished Business, Women Running in 2018 and Beyond. So, Kelly, as you were laying out kind of those patterns that you saw, um, I want to parse them out because I think there's a lot to learn and explore here. So one of the things that was that you noted and that you see throughout the report is that there were big gains in the number of women filing, running and winning seats in office. But they were largely Democrats. What is going on in the Republican Party and in these races across the country that women are not just not growing, but they're actually losing traction, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that one important just contextual factor to to be quite fair, right, to Republicans in the last election is just re- we always have to remember that going into an election in which uh, your party has power – so in this case, the Republicans holding both uh, chambers in Congress and the presidency in particular, and also many state legislative chambers. It is less likely that you would see a surge in the candidates of your party because you're happy with the incumbents, right? Um, and so there is part of the story of Republicans in 2018 um, that is about you know consistency. So mostly incumbents are running, and those incumbents, because of the existing disparities in the Republican Party mean that it's mostly men who are running. Um, But on top of that, you had an added of Republicans then having a bad year and women really fell to that. So we we saw the number of women in the um, House, for example, Republican women go down by 10 from 23 to 13. So you basically almost by half cut the representation of Republican women. Um, So context, bad year for Republicans, but going in a sort of incumbent year, so a challenge in terms of the opportunities there were for more uh, Republican women to run, perhaps. Um, And then I think there's something that I think we've talked about before, which is um, both a structural and cultural problem. So the Mm -hmm. structural problem uh, being that there's a support infrastructure for Democrats that just really does not exist at the same level for Republican women. That includes um, PACs, organizations financially supporting uh, women. There are more Republican uh, women's PACs trying. So winning for women is relatively new for the last cycle. 
ViewPack has been around. Um, there's a new uh, organization called Women for a Stronger New Jersey just here in, in, in our home state at Rutgers that's, again, trying to support Republican women. But none of them match the power of Emily's List, which is an organization to support pro-choice Democratic women. So financial infrastructure is really important, um, but also campaign trainings um, and that sort of support and targeting from the party. The Democrats are by no means perfect on this, but they certainly have more folks in leadership who seem to be committed to increasing uh, gender parity, whether or not it's for strategic reasons um, right. or because they think it's right. Either way, um, they seem more willing to do that, whereas on the Republican side, there's been a bit of a reluctance um, to do any specific targeting and recruitment of women outside of a couple important folks um, in the party, like Elise Stefanik and others. But those folks who are trying to do it seem to be sort of butting up against folks who say we shouldn't be selecting people based on identity. So in some ways, what's happening, this pattern in the Republican Party. So I just want to reflect back and make sure I'm understanding it. So part of it is that um, efforts within the party were going to were going to center on keeping the incumbent in place because the status mm-hmm. quo was working, um, mm-hmm. and that what we saw was that when Democrats won, it's that they were not campaigning as incumbents. Um, well, yeah, I mean, so it was just a good day, right? The the gains we saw for women, obviously, you know, we're thinking about gains um, were those who took advantage of opportunities. So. Uh, Democratic women made up the majority of those who flipped House seats Mm -hmm. from Republican to Democrat. So, yes, they were challenging incumbents or taking advantage of open seats that were created because an incumbent wasn't running or for some other reason. Um, Republican women, only one new Republican women won a U.S. House seat in 2018. Um, So that means of all of the races where there may have been open seats that were friendly to Republicans, which were fewer in 2018 than in previous cycles, but of all of those, one um, was won by a woman. So yes, the overall limited opportunity, you know, there were fewer opportunities um, for Republicans, or at least we can sort of say that post facto because we saw Democrats fare well in these competitive seats and flip a lot of seats. but even there, where there were opportunities, clearly women weren't in races. Um, and in fact, women were Republican women were in some of the most competitive races against Democrats and they lost their seats. So people like Mia Love, uh, Claudia Tenney um, and others, uh, Barbara Comstock, who lost um, their their elections in 2018 as and, Republican women. And so and then to follow through the rest of the thread. So some of this is um, attributable to kind of structures within party politics that help support candidates. And if I think about it like with a business parallel, that we try and have diversity and inclusion programs that keep um, underrepresented groups moving through the pipeline, and that um, aside from the various programs that are there to helpfully hire them, train them, and retain them, um, and dollars that go towards that, there's also the question of, is talent given mentorship and sponsorship? And that this has a parallel apparently within party politics and how candidates get supported to campaign. Am I correct? Yeah, and I think one one way to sort of compare them but know also just the, the different dynamics of a, of a campaign is that one of the challenges 
for any women running for any candidate running for office is to get support early on, right? So that early seed support um, is really important, especially in campaigns in a financial way, you know, that you're willing to back somebody, but even endorsements and like they need to come early because they need to help make a case to the public um, that you're serious. Um, so you can think about it in a business, you know, analogy mm-hmm. of like who, what sort of network and who do you have vouching for you, right? And that that can very much shape your trajectory. That is true in politics, particularly in that way. But in order to get involved early in a women's ca- a woman's campaign, that often means you're making a choice, right, of a woman candidate over somebody else in your own party, right, at the primary stage. Mm-hmm. And parties don't like to do that. The Democrats or the Republicans, they right. don't like to get involved in primary politics. They don't like to pick a winner um, at that point. And the Republican leadership has repeatedly said that. In fact, after the 2018 election, Elise Stefanik, who is a member of Congress who had uh, run the recruitment operation for the NRCC, the National Republican Campaign Committee, um, in 2018, came out publicly and said, look, the only way that we're going to get more women is if we support them in the primary stage. And so she started a PAC where she would start women early on and endorsing them and things like that. And the new head of the NRCC immediately responded to an article and said, I think that's a bad idea. And his agreement wasn't so much, or he clarified saying it wasn't so much that he didn't want to support women. It was that parties shouldn't get involved in the primary stage. But again, if you look at Emily's list or what has happened on the Democratic side, that's exactly how they've been able to get more women in office is that early. In fact, Emily's list stands for early money is like yeast. Oh, um, so <laughs> right. Um, and so it is the model that seems to work is a model that there it, for which there is a, a good deal of reluctancy, at least in the in the Republican Party. So now another question about the Republican Party. And we've talked about some of this before. And I think the report um, did a great job of spelling this out. Um, to what degree and in what ways is beyond these structural differences, um, it rooted in values or gender stereotypes? Yeah, so there's there's sort of two aspects of that. One, in terms of values, I think is, you know, a sort of fair uh, assessment of the party that says, like, we, we just choose the best candidate. So this is a meritocracy, right? Um, and so why would we, again, choose a winner in the primary stage just because she's a woman? Of course, for those of us who do this work, there's a couple flaws with that. One is you're not choosing her just because she's a woman, obviously. Um but also there's a, then a lack of recognition that the playing field is not level to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. So that assumes a level playing field. And as we know across industries, um, that just certainly there's just ample evidence um, that women face different challenges, have different networks, um, and that men, in particular white men, can often have a boost um, in many ways um, in these areas, not only in sort of public opinion and evaluation that they are well-suited for this position without even having to prove themselves because <laughs> right. they look like what's been in that position before, but also having access to muddied networks, um, political folks who've had power and, you know, they don't, they can kiss that ring and whichever, that these are ways in which they already have a leg up. And so 
but sort of going back to the Republican sort of ideology to say, hey, this is meritocracy. We don't we don't look at race. We don't look at gender. We just choose the best person. It then becomes sort of contradictory to say we choose the best person, but we're going to start this targeting program for women. Um, it just makes it hard for them to reconcile. And you actually often hear this um, from particularly Republican women who are very supportive of equity, you know, who are mm-hmm. saying, like, we really want to support women, but we don't want to support women just because they're women. Right. As- <laughs> very tricky line um, that they tend to walk because is, of this ideology. Is embedded this, and the report touches on this, that voters have actually, because one of the things that you're not saying is that there's any belief that women couldn't do the job well. Have voters substantially and solidly moved to the place where they believe that men and women are equally capable of governing and serving in these roles? Yeah, pretty much, right? So if you look at any public um, of course, take this with a bit of a grain of salt. We talk about it in you know, social sciences as social desirability bias, that when you ask people if they have biases, of course, they're going to say no. Um, but um, these numbers even have changed over time to say, you know, would you prefer um, a woman in office or would you like more women in office? All these sorts of questions, we see positive trends. Um, and even going into 2020, there's been some polls that demonstrate, you know, people saying, I actually think it would be better to have a woman candidate, for example, for president, um, and that there would be particular advantages to that. Um, so there are certainly, we, yeah, there's a part of the report where we talk about gender as an electoral, you know, being a woman as an electoral advantage based on some of these polls. Um, but to your question about party, there are partisan differences in the responses to those questions, specifically questions like, do you want more women in office? Um, uh, you know, how important is it to have women in office? Where you certainly see Republican uh, respondents less likely to express support for that, um, to that question. Um, you could argue a couple of things there. One may be um, that when you would ask Republicans about having more women in office, they assume that you're talking about Democrats. Because ah. if you look at who's in office and the majority and increasingly so after 2018, um, an even greater pool of women in office are Democrats. Um, so that may be part of the partisan difference. But then there's that secondary piece, which I think is what I just alluded to, which is like they're more likely to say it doesn't matter. So not like not we don't see Republican voters or few saying you know, I want fewer women in office, though there are some, um, <laughs> but mostly saying, mostly saying, like, it shouldn't matter, right? Um, and so it's fine where we are because gender shouldn't. So in order to juxtapose this and to bring into high relief a few of these points, um, the overall pattern is that at least self-reported, there's less bias mm-hmm. than there used to be. However, there's a system that is still intrinsically biased, even if it's not intentionally biased. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. And just one other point there is that even, you know, there are still in some ways some biases. So we're talking about explicit questions about having women in office. But when you ask about sort of stereotypes and traits that are often affiliated with office holders, there, even though those biases have also reduced, in other words, women are um, you know, more likely to be seen as strong now than maybe you know, 10 years ago when you asked about a trait, um, 
uh, more likely to seen as be seen as experts on the economy, something that had previously been a challenge for women. Um, but there are still places where men sort of outperform them in stereotypical evaluation. So men are still more likely to be seen as experts on defense. Um, they're um, more likely to be seen as sort of tough, right? So if those are things that people value, especially in the presidency, um, that can influence evaluations, even if voters don't say, well, I wouldn't vote for a woman, but I really want somebody who's really tough and really good on defense, right? And then it's sort of a secondary bias, right? Like that could influence how they evaluate a woman candidate, which then informs how women may have to run in some different ways to credential themselves um, in these areas in ways that, again, men may not have to. And I want to drill in on this point because it's really, I think, important as we think about what happened in the 2016 election and also as we examine this more deeply, both in our next half hour and going forward, that it's the way the candidates are evaluated because what real experience they have isn't the thing that's on the table. It's the way it's represented and perceived and judged. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and if you saw, there's a lot of news um, at the start of this week um, from the New York Times about some of the polling that they had done in focus groups. Um, And, you know, I hate to bring it up because I don't even want to fuel the fire, but certainly it's important to see that voters are saying, well, Elizabeth Warren just isn't likable. (laughs) And so we're back to this, you know, same Really, that's probably one of the clearest examples when we're talking about evaluation, right? Like mm-hmm. that's a, the, the, one of the clearest biases where um, there's very little substance behind it other than people react differently to women's behavior than they do to men's behavior. And to be fair, men and women react differently, right? right. Um, so women are also likely to say like, oh, I just don't like her. I, I don't know what it is, um, but are totally fine with Bernie Sanders yelling at them for a half an hour. You know, it's, just a, <laughs> it's a very different standard. And one of the things we talk about in the report is, you know, those different standards. And so that's one overt one, but certainly there are others. And there are also some that are quite intersectional when we talk about race and gender um, in how, um Black women, somebody like Kamala Harris is going to be also evaluated and held to somewhat different standards than Elizabeth Warren. Um, And those are the things that we both have to sort of check as voters, check those biases and standards, but also the candidates in their campaigns have to spend time thinking about often more time than their white male counterparts. Um, So one of the things I want to explore is how do voters' gender stereotypes influence a female candidate's campaign strategy? Um, What should they do um, to deal with this remarkable challenge that they're up against? So that's what I love in part about the 2018. I think in both 2016, but especially in 2018, with the sort of record number of women running, we saw them sort of running in different ways. So so one thing I want to say up front is, um, and you'll see this in the report, that we sort of off the bat say, women, there's no way to run as a woman, right? And there's very diverse and multiple ways to run as a woman candidate, just as there are with men. But there are certain, you know, things that that women do experience that are different than men based on gender. And so some of these are are the challenges that that we noted earlier um, and and you mentioned just now. And so how does that shape their strategy? In the past, um, historically, you've seen a lot of strategists 
who, by the way, have been dominated historically um, by white men who are political operatives and consultants and folks. And they would say to women and women would largely agree, I have to prove that I'm sort of man enough for the job. So I meet the credentials that have been held as important for these offices for so long. Um, so, you know, we joke about the pantsuits and the hair and all of that, but that is sort of part of it. Mm-hmm. Like, let me just put on this uniform, um, make sure that my gender, me being a woman, is not an obstacle to winning office. And so let me just try to take that off the table. And that was really, for many women, part of the strategy. It didn't mean that women didn't talk about being women, but it was certainly less of uh, something that they touted as an advantage or an asset. In 2016, I think we saw Hillary Clinton sort of switch the, the narrative a bit on that, especially in comparison to her previous presidential campaign to talk about gender as an electoral asset and her experience as a woman as a benefit. It's something she brought as a value added to office. In 2018, I think we saw that much more explicitly among many of the women running, particularly the Democratic women running uh, for office. Um, And so they talked about being mothers. They talked about their Me Too experiences. They talked about challenges of being, you know, women of color, Muslim women or Native American women. Um, And so they were willing to sort of bring more of themselves and particularly parts of themselves that were unique to their gender to their campaign message and narrative, not just to say vote for me because I'm a woman, but vote for me because the story, experience, and perspective that I bring, that lived experience as a woman or as a woman of color, is something that's not well enough represented in the halls of Congress or in any of these policymaking bodies. And so in that way, you sort of flip the script. Um, And so we have some really great examples of that from 2018. And and I think we're seeing that in 2020 at the presidential level as well, a sort of freeing of women to a certain extent um, in being willing and able to talk about uh, the ways in which being a woman is a value added. How much of that is that we're expanding our notion of we're, we're valuing women and their experiences differently as a society. It's a backlash against Donald Trump. Or mm-hmm. is it that we had Hillary Clinton as a role model? I think it's all of those things. So I think that, that Hillary Clinton's candidacies sort of give some permission. You know, she was sort of navigating uncharted waters. Um, and so she kind of you know, when she says, you know, putting uh, those cracks in the glass ceiling, um, it may seem kind of corny, but I think that's right. You know, she's chipping away. And so did women before her, to be fair. You know, Shirley Chisholm was chipping Mm -hmm. away. Um, Many other women who were running at high levels of office were really challenging notions of what it looked like. I mean, that was one of the things Shirley Chisholm would say when she ran for office as the first black woman for president in 1972, um, you know, saying somebody has to do it first. And what she meant, right, if you sort of play that out, is somebody has to make this even seem possible. And then we can start to sort of push even further about not only the fact that a woman can win, but that being a woman or being a woman of color can be something that we actually aspire into or we see as valuable um, in this office, not that they can just fit the role that that men have, have held for so long. Um, So I think that's part of it. I think the Trump contrast is really important. So as we go into 2020 in particular, 
um, I sort of sometimes laugh at the question of like, oh, but could a woman go against Trump? And I think, God, like to me, that seems obvious. <laughs> the people that are rattled or the people that rattle Donald Trump the most are women of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see it at his press conferences. You see like you just see it in every interaction he's had um, that when he gets most out of control to the extent that he is, he's not very much in a lot of control. But when he, you know, like in terms of being on script, um, but when he is most sort of off the cuff and in ways that yield um, sort of negative backlash, it's it's in those interactions when he is question, his power is questioned by women or women of color. And so it seems like strategically, maybe that's something we should think about. And I think women who are working to sort of set up a contrast with him, again, can sort of really contrast that um, traditional performance of, of masculinity that he often gives, you know, I'm the strongest, I'm the toughest, I have the most stamina, all of that. Um, and so I think those are certainly all sort of contribute to this dynamic. And then the broader cultural conversations we're having about gender and power, which is Me Too, um, which I would say happened sort of simultaneously mm-hmm. with the 2018 election. I don't think one caused the other, but I think it was all part of a cultural moment in which we're questioning the imbalance of power between men and women and seeing the very negative repercussions of those uh, inequities in power. And so how do we remedy that? One is by getting more women at more tables, right. <laughs> um, making sure that they're part of decision making. Absolutely. For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I am talking with Kelly Dittmar, a scholar at the Center for American Women in Politics. And we're discussing, obviously, the election, politics, women in office, um, informed by this fantastic report that she did at the center that's called Unfinished Business, Women Running in 2018 and beyond. So, Kelly, one of the things that you're bringing up now that I really want to explore a little bit is um, the dynamic, particularly as it relates to women of color. And did I read the report correctly that um, we've seen a pattern that women of color are getting elected in normally in majority minority districts? Um, What are the patterns and, and how what can we look towards if we want to see women of color get traction in predominantly wealthy, urban, um, uh, white districts? Yeah. So this is one of the the data points um, from 2018 that I think is so promising, um, which is that we saw more um, women of color winning in majority white districts than we have in any previous election. Um, In in fact, a sort of majority of the new women of color in Congress um, won in these majority white districts. So you can look at women like Lauren Underwood in the suburbs of Chicago um, or Ilhan Omar in the suburbs or in, in the Minneapolis, the Twin Cities area. And what's so important about that is it challenges what I think is a biased notion um, of this idea that uh, people of color or women of color cannot win in majority white areas. And if you play out that argument or assumption or expectation, what that then means is whenever you're talking about a statewide race, um, Senate or statewide elected office, governor, et cetera, um, there's immediately a sense that like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if she can win mm-hmm. um, because I don't know that white folks will vote for her. Um, and first of all, it's sort of a negative and very pessimistic view of voters. Um, it's also just not true in based on what we've seen, at least in recent elections. While we do see higher rates you know, of, of success, 
um, for candidates of color in majority minority districts. That does not mean they cannot win in majority white districts, right? So, you know, these two things can be true at the same time. Um, and one of the probably more most notable cases in 2018 of pushing against this idea, even though she didn't win, was Stacey Abrams, who mm-hmm. ran for governor in Georgia, um, who was asked this question all of the time, which goes to my argument about the additional work that women need to do. Um, you know, like, can you win? Can you win? So she had to simultaneously just remind people she could win and then actually <laughs> and actually try to why. win. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and actually try to win. Um, but so she did it, and, and she did a really great job at it. And what she did was she built coalitions, and she won a lot of white voters, and she won a lot of rural voters. And while at the end of the day she didn't win, she came closer than any other Democrat in the last two-plus decades. Um she also had against her, you know, folks in Georgia would say a lot of irregularities in voting and things like that that were a bit out of her, you know, a bit out of her control. Um, and so she was a case in which I think you actually demonstrated, even though she didn't win, um, that, that this black woman, you know, we've never elected a black woman governor, by the way, um, but that she could win, um, certainly could win, especially if she ran that race again. Um, and so hopefully that reminds folks in recruitment, those who are doing the recruitment, that this is possible. Um, but certainly this bias hasn't gone away and, and we're seeing it at the presidential level and all of the questions asked about, you know, can Kamala Harris actually win? So when we're at dinner parties or Thanksgiving dinner table, as I have been, and the conversation mm-hmm. goes to um, who are people going to endorse in a primary and that um, there people are afraid to endorse an underrepresented candidate for just this reasons. One, we're um, continuing a self-fulfilling, we're, we're feeding the yes. self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. And also, we need to hold up Stacey Abrams as a shining example of why it doesn't have to be the case. Yeah, and the women in Congress, too. Uh, so, you know, these women who were successful in majority white districts, that incre- an increasing number, proportion of women of color in Congress are representing majority white areas. Um, and yeah, and I do think to your point about the self-fulfilling prophecy, one of the arguments I also just make is like electability is determined by you. In other words, <laughs> right. the person you're talking to determines whether or not this person can win. And so if you if you buy into the existing bias based on previous uh, success or previous office holding, then we'll never, you know, break out of having old white guys hold all of the offices. Uh, so it is incumbent on voters to be able to look beyond where we are today and to see a future in which there's better inclusion and representation in politics. And your vote is what determines electability. Absolutely. So I want to go back to something that you were talking about before, which unfortunately is this issue of how much harder women have to work or any underrepresented group has to work to be Um, successful. When Valerie Jarrett was on the show, she was talking about this was inculcated in her as a child that she had to work three times as hard. And um, it's an enormous burden to carry. It also means that when you see somebody like that who has risen up the ranks, their exceptionality is 
um, often uh, overlooked or not understood because that's somebody who's not only gifted, skilled, but working and has been working incredibly hard to get and make the most of every opportunity. So talk to me about how this plays out for women candidates. Where does the hard work have to go? Because you were talking about Stacey Abrams constantly having to fend off the doubters. Help make this real for us for what these candidates are up against and where they could benefit from support. Yeah. Um, So I want to sort of tout here some research from my colleague. Her name is Sarah Fulton, and she's done some really great work um, where she describes the what she would call the performance premium on women candidates. And particularly, she's done this research over time, and she's sort of redone it to, you know, ensure that this is consistently true um, for women candidates for Congress in particular, noting um, that they are, yes, they're performing at the same rates as men, right? We talk a lot about women win at the same rates as men, you know, in comparable races and all of that. True. But what she finds in her research is they are consistently more qualified than the men that they're winning, you know, that they're they're running and winning against, um, which demonstrates sort of what, you know, Valerie Jarrett was saying and others women often wait to run until they have all those qualifications, first of all. Um, And then voters often expect more of those qualifications. So, yes, they're winning. They've done all this work even before they've gotten to the point of candidacy that is just disparate from their male counterparts. So, So Sarah's work basically says we can't assume that equal outcomes mean equity in the process to get to that outcome. And I think that's so important um, in thinking about the work that women need to do. So in her case, it's her measure of qualifications and quality, um, you know, is based on a number of factors, um, but certainly, you know, things you would expect in terms of background and um, perceptions of quality from from political operatives. You mean like having been secretary of state and served as a state senator, (laughs) little things like that? Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Those sorts of things. so that's one. It's like before you even get there um, to do more. My colleague Tessa Detonto then has done work showing how how this plays with voters, which is also really helpful. So she does like a campaign simulation and finds that voters are also more likely to seek out competency information um, about women candidates versus male candidates. So they are going to, you know, when given a sort of module, they're going to want to look at a woman's, you know, education or, again, the offices she's held or things like that more so than they do with men. And the presumption there is that they assume men are qualified, but they have to be sort of it has to be proven to them that the women uh, meet those same quality standards or competence standards. So, again, what does that mean on the campaign trail? Well, women have to tout those qualifications and those credentials. Um, they have to prove themselves. Uh, you look at the presidential campaign, and, and I sort of chuckle when uh, in the last debate, Pete, Pete Buttigieg was sort of making a, a jab at uh, or jabbing uh, Elizabeth Warren, and he said, you know, you haven't come out with a concrete plan. I think it was on her Medicare for All plan that he was critiquing her on. And we all know that she had however many plans. Oh, my God. You know, yeah. Many plans website. And in fact, that is her, you know, her catchphrase. You know, I have a plan for that. Right. Um, I don't know how uh, 
how much you know her campaign thought of this vis-a-vis gender, um, but certainly that is something that we would you would hear recommended to women, which is you have to have all your plans laid out, you have to prove that you have you're ready to go um, more so than your male counterparts. So what was so sweet about that moment was Pete Buttigieg was the one for the first two to three months of his campaign who said, "I don't think we should put out plans. Right. I think we should talk about big ideas." And a relatively inexperienced candidate gets real traction, no matter how interesting his ideas are. If we just weigh out on that qualification front, he hasn't done the same homework and he hasn't had the same experience as the candidate that he's um, mocking. Yeah. And so it's just this, this moment where I thought, wow, there's so much gender to this. And it doesn't mean he can't critique her, but like, wow, the standard for how much she has to prove in her plans, you know, versus, <laughs> versus you seems to be quite different. Um, and that just goes to the, the final thing I would say in terms of the, the, you know, proving themselves. And we find, for example, on finance, you know, yes, women can raise the same amount, but they have to do additional work. Um, so in all sorts of areas of campaigns, you see this additional work that women do. Um, But the last one I will say, going back to Stacey Abrams, and this actually came from uh, a conversation I had with one of her her communications uh, director for the campaign, who said, we had to wage a concurrent campaign of belief. And I love that phrase, and I think it perfectly encapsulates not only what Stacey Abrams had to do, but especially what the women are doing running for president. So they're running a campaign on the merits. I'm the best candidate. I have the best plans. I'm going to be best in this office. At the same time, they have to talk to donors and political leaders, folks they want endorsements from, and voters to say, and don't worry, a woman can win. And don't worry, a woman of color can win. Um, And even show them how that's possible. So Daisy Abrams' campaign would literally do the math. You know, here's how it's possible to convince people that she was electable, to convince them to give her money, to convince them to vote for her in a primary. Um, And that is an additional financial burden. It's a burden of time um, and it's a burden of energy um, that their male counterparts just don't have to do. Um, I should say, to be fair, that their white male counterparts don't have to do. Right. Yeah. Um, So one of the things that this now makes me extra curious about are the young, non-white women who made their way into Congress, despite all of these barriers. How did they do it, given the the framework that we now understand they're up against? So I think part of it was being willing to, to challenge what has been deemed as the status quo. So if you're Ayanna Presley, who's very politically astute, by the way, right? She had been on the Boston City Council. She was this was not somebody who just woke up one day and decided she was running for Congress. Um, but she was also willing to take the risk that by running a member of her own party, who was very popular, right, um, um, that, you know, she would be able to um, be successful and sort of win the, the, the support of her party after the primary and all of that. She gamed it out. She understood how to do it. And and she understood that it meant really connecting with voters and particularly groups of voters that may not have felt listened to or represented before. And I think particularly for the women of color, they were there giving voice to communities that have not had a seat at the table. Ayanna Presley is the first black woman elected 
from Massachusetts to Congress. Um, Ilhan Omar is the first woman of color elected to Congress from Minnesota. Rashida Tlaib uh, is one of the first Muslim women in Congress, right? So these women were trailblazing. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, um, I think they could communicate to voters that they offered something new and different. And they were sort of fearless in that. And I think that um, that was really helpful to them in being successful. And like Stacey Abrams, they really challenged the notion, not only that they could be supported by a wide uh, swath of voters, but also said, Democratic Party, you need to do better at speaking to your base voters, which are communities. Of color. Mm -hmm. And you need to understand how to leverage those votes and turn out those voters to be successful. And I think uh, any of the presidential candidates could take some lessons um, from what some of those <laughs> women did in 2018 if they want to be successful. Well, with the few minutes that we have left, I want to talk about another group who could take some lessons from you. I'm in the group, at least for each week that I'm on the radio, and that's the media. Um, mm -hmm. Where are the media a factor in this? And if you could make a wish for how the media would approach things differently based on your research, um, what should we be keeping in mind? Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of ways that media can be sort of a help versus a hindrance on this. One is for the media to recognize and call out where the biases exist. So it doesn't mean we can't talk or say the word likability, right, in reporting. But when we do that, it should be combined with the very real evidence that there is a gendered um, bias about how much likability matters for women versus how much it matters for men. So if you're reporting on, you know, these concerns about likability to quickly say, here's the research that demonstrates that this is a gendered um, evaluation. And so she's sort of digging into the, the gendered and racial and intersectional nuances of biases, um, I think, can be done in reporting. Um, and also being sure not to play into some of the narratives that perpetuate those biases. I think we get really close to that with a lot of the stories on electability. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, instead of problematizing the concept of electability and how that benefits the status quo, i.e. white men, um, right, we often just sort of say, oh, yeah, well, voters said that Joe Biden was more electable, so... <laughs> right, because like, we want to root for the winning horse. Yeah, and it's so so let's, let's think about that. And obviously there have been some really great analyses that have dug in, but I think we could even do more of those to sort of dig into what those biases are. And lastly, um, one of the examples I use in the report that I just think is a great a great point, um, Rebecca Tracer wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago where she said, you know, that folks should stop asking women candidates about sexism or um, uh, candidates of color about racism. And she, she goes into why, but one of the reasons is it sort of plays into this additional labor. Yeah, that these candidates have to do like they have to explain to you bias. Well, that just because they are experiencing it doesn't mean that they should be the ones to have to explain it. So I think it's sort of either holding all the candidates to account on these issues um, or taking that burden off of them and doing the work sort of on the media end to explain those concepts so that when you do the interview with Elizabeth Warren, you get to ask her about substance instead of about why, you know, her uh, gender brings her a disadvantage on the campaign trail. Because by doing that, you're sort of perpetuating the notion that it's a hurdle she has to overcome. Kelly, as always, I have learned so much from you and so thoroughly enjoyed it during the whole process. So thank you for joining us on Women at Work. 
Thank you. Always enjoy being here. If people want to find out more about what you're doing, where can they find you? So we're at cop, C-A-W-P, dot records, R-U-T-G-E-R-S, dot E-D-U, and our report is at womenrun.records, dot E-D-U. Fantastic. Thank you again, and thank you, everyone, for listening today. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 